0: going to read from John chapter 20 verses 24 through 29 Ахма, один з дванадцятих званий близнюк, і з ними не був, як приходив Ісус. Інші ж учні сказали йому: Ми бачили Господа, і він відказав їм: Коли на руках його знаку від свиховія не побачу, і пальці свого не вкладу до відсвячної рани, і свої руки не вкладу до боку Його, не ввірою. За, за вісім днень, вже удома Його учні, і Хома були, бив з ними, як замкнені були двері, прийшов Ісус і став посереді, та й промовляє, «Мир вам!» Потім каже Хомі, «Простягни свого пальця сюди, і на руки мої подивись, І руку свою вклади до бока Мого, і не будь не віруючий, але віруючий. І хомо промовляє. Сказав йому: Господь мій і Бог мій. Промовляє до нього Ісус. Тому вірував Ти, що побачив мене. Блаженні, що не бачили і ввірували. На Thomas, also known as Diddymas. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: Would you remain standing just for one more moment? So may we be good hearers of the word and better doers may we love jesus deeply may we trust what jesus says and may we follow jesus well amen you may be seated good morning everybody good morning. can you do a fa- do me a favor real quick and just smile because you know some of you have never seen you before so hey it's nice to see you my name's christian god is kind oh We are in a series right now um, for Lent called In This Life You Will Have Trouble. Those are words from Jesus, probably not the quote that you have in your kitchen, but they're one of his promises. Last week, Tyler talked about suffering, and if you missed it, um, I really, really, really encourage you. Like, it was one of the best teachings I've actually heard in my life, let alone one of the best, probably the best teaching I've ever heard on suffering, and I'm not just gassing him up because he's my boss. Like, I'm actually being for real. Go listen to it, and if you were here or already heard it, go listen to it again. It's definitely worthwhile. But this week is part two, and so if you want a title for this teaching, here's the best one I got, Not What I Expected. This is not what I expected. Now, sometime uh, last year, I found out something really, really shocking about the woman who would become my wife. Is anyone in a relationship with someone who constantly kind of keeps you on your toes? Anybody else yes thank you yes like after the gathering we can talk and have a quick little like therapy session I get you that is my wife Yinka Now I remember one day a few months ago uh, a few months into our relationship I was telling um, Yinka about one of my friends kids. his name is Ricardo so Ricardo um, we were talking about my friend and me and my other friend Jen and a bunch of us went and we um, got to go to Disneyland together and we took Ricardo then um, he was like three or four years old and he got to go and he had the best time like it was awesome going to name with a four-year-old is great, or just going with me is great, because I act like a four-year-old. But um, Ricardo, though, we were talking about him, and I was telling him this, telling her this story, and he actually goes by the name Maverick, or Mav for short. And so I was talking to Yinka and going, like, yeah, it's kind of weird, like, his name's Ricardo, but, like, they call him Mav because, like, Maverick, Ricardo, Mav, I mean, like, I guess, why not? Like, that's what they call him. And, I was, and Yinka's like, actually, I kind of get that. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, Yinka's not really my name. This is months into our relationship. (laughs) Yinka's full name is actually Mary Ola Yinka Fumilayo Tocumbo Fisayo Ayodele, now Dawson, which is really hard to fit on a birthday card. Um, But her name, it has a beautiful meaning. It means wealth surrounds me, give me joy, something from a foreign place, put joy in it, joy come home. Dang. One of my best friends had their first child this weekend, and they named him Mace Heli Herrick, which means gift of God, ascending war ruler. Names and labels, they're powerful. Have you ever noticed how some of the words and labels and names that we use on people can have an effect on who they become? Ever had someone label you and label your life because of an experience that you had for a season? That's a part of why I find the Apostle Thomas such an interesting person. Who's ever heard of Thomas? This is actually participation. Show of hands, perfect. So if you've heard of Thomas, then most of you probably know that he's known as Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Good job. Church kids right there. Doubting Thomas. That sucks. (laughs) This homie has forever been canonized in the scripture as the doubter. It's not a good look on like your Instagram bio or your LinkedIn page. And the funny thing is scripture doesn't even say too much about Thomas. Other disciples, they get like way more shine. You have Peter, he's the rock. He gets tons written about him. You have John, the, the disciple who Jesus loved. Okay, like that's the bio I want. You even have the sons of thunder. Like that's pretty dope. But doubting Thomas, he only gets a few lines in scripture. In John chapter 14, Jesus commands his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to the place to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Classic Jesus, right? He says something and he's like, yeah, obvious. And the disciples, they're feeling like, Jesus, you're being kind of cryptic. And they do the thing that like I would do in my AP history class, where you're kind of like talking, does anybody understand what he's saying? The disciples are doing this back and forth thing, but not Thomas. In John chapter 14, Thomas actually speaks up. He goes, Jesus... Uh, Where was it? Classic moment with Jesus. He says, uh, he speaks up. He goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I actually respect that about Thomas. He isn't going to front. He's not going to pretend. He names the elephant in the room. Jesus, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Thomas, in my opinion, he's a learner and he's bold. He's willing to jump in and ask the question that no one else will. And from Thomas's humility, Jesus actually responds with one of his most iconic statements. Do you know this one? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Thank you, Thomas, for the setup. Thomas, that's the sort of disciple that he is. Now, there's another instance with Thomas that John tells us about in John chapter 11. Jesus is waiting to go to Judea to heal his friend who is dying, but the disciples, they're nervous about going there. Jesus, last time you were there, some people almost killed you. This isn't a great idea. You know, dying would really mess up the plan. But Jesus, he's adamant about going, regardless of the risk. Thomas then looks at the other disciples and looks at Jesus and says, let us go with him that we may die with him. Thomas, he's ready. He's committed, he's willing to go in and even die with Jesus. He's the ride-or-die sort of disciple. That's Thomas. So how do you go from being a disciple who's a learner, who asks the questions that no one's willing to ask, who's willing to ride or die with Jesus, to being labeled the doubter? What gets Thomas there and what gets any disciple there? Well, between his diligence and his devotion, Thomas experiences a death. A death. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Jesus begins his ministry from an unexpected place. Crowds begin to form, and Thomas ends up as one of Jesus' closest students. He has a bird's-eye view, and after traveling with Jesus, he's got to suspect that Jesus, he, he might just be the Messiah. Thomas begins to suspect this could be the one. Is this the Messiah? Is this the person that our parents told us about? Is this the one that our grandparents were praying for? It feels like months, every few months, we have another holiday feast, another holy day where we anticipate the Messiah's coming, but maybe the wait is over. Maybe this is him. Jesus wasn't only a teacher to Thomas. Do you see that? He's the Messiah. And with that, Jesus is the embodiment of Thomas's future, his dreams, his hopes, his community, his family, his plans, his life. A lot of us have the privilege of sufficiency. So it's not always easy to relate to Thomas. It's not always easy to relate to Thomas's need. But what if the possibility of your family one day not being oppressed were on the line? What if the future of your city could be connected to one person? What if, the things that were, what if things were finally getting ready to change? What if things were able to get better? What if the change you've been longing for and the dream you've been hoping for and the prayer you've been praying was finally getting answered? What if you finally began to really hope and then it all just dies? Have you ever trusted Jesus and then he lets things die? Have you ever trusted Jesus and he disappoints? I think Thomas had. Unpopular opinion, but I'm not sold that doubter is the best label to give to Thomas. At least not forever. Doubt is what he sure was experiencing. Doubt was the verb, but should it really be an adjective? Like, should it be how we forever label him? Thomas forever labeled as the doubter? Thomas with an identity of doubter, not a label that Jesus gave him, by the way. See, I don't think Thomas at his core is a doubter. That label seems too simple and maybe even short-sighted. I think that Thomas is more than a doubter. I think he's deeply disappointed, or maybe better said, Thomas is disillusioned. Disillusionment. The feeling of disappointment from discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. Disillusionment is what we experience when things fall apart. It's the nights we stay up in bed and cry ourselves to sleep because we don't know how it'll work out. It's the nights we can't fall asleep because we don't know how to pull our world back together. It's the pit in our stomach that won't go away when we feel so stuck. It's the it's the tightness in our chest because we can't just figure it out. Disillusionment is what happens in our minds and our bodies. Thomas is disillusioned. He came to Jesus. He came with Jesus to Jerusalem on Passover of all weeks ready to see things finally change, ready to see his hopes realized, ready for the prayers to finally be answered, and Jesus dies. He lets the plan fall apart. And you could imagine that Thomas's world was shattered. This is not what Thomas expected. Hardship, sure, some problems, of course, but death, everything falling apart. And now his friends, him and his friends, they're in hiding. It probably feels... A little like Jesus left them, and now maybe just like him, they're going to be killed. How could things even get worse? That's where we find Thomas in John chapter 20 and verse 25. If I don't see the mark of the nail in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is stuck. He can't move forward. He can't hear good news. The other disciples are saying that they saw Jesus, but, and Jesus is back. And things might actually get better, and they could actually be better than he, they could ever imagine. But Thomas says, I cannot believe. This is not intellectual assent, friends. Thomas is not saying that he can't get his mind around it, that he can't conceptualize it, that he has no room for the possibility. Belief isn't just a mental exercise or a checklist off the orthodoxy box. Belief isn't ultimately even about our thinking. When we use the word belief in so many different ways, it's easy to miss how much we actually relate to Thomas. The Greek word that is often translated in English as believe is the word pistevo. Try that, just try it with me. Pistevo. One more time, like you're not afraid to fail. Beautiful. Yes, it's often translated believe, but a word that will likely capture the meaning for us better is the word trust. Thomas is saying that unless I touch it for myself, I will not trust again. And it's with his words that we realize that this is not really a person just having an intellectual crisis and this isn't an unfamiliar story of someone's experience years ago because those of us who've experienced it know that doubt in its various forms and with its various stories is less intellectual and way more experiential. Doubt for most of us is what happens when my experience does not fit neatly into my worldview. It's when I've been told that if I follow Jesus, bad things won't really happen. Or if I just have faith, it'll work out. Doubt is the wrestling of prayers gone unanswered. It's the part sad, part angry, part flustered, part confused mess within us. It's the honest and good question, God, why? It's the wonderings of what I'm asking for seems good. It seems like it's in your will, God. And by the nature of you being good, God, it's in your power to fix this. And I know that you're deeply loving, so why? Why? Why didn't you come through this time when it really mattered? It's Mary and Martha at the tomb of their brother in John chapter 11 asking Jesus why he took so long. Sure, we're glad you're here now, but what about when I sent word and asked? What about the first time I prayed? Why didn't you come through when you could have? Why do your miracles sometimes seem so random? This is not what I signed up for, Jesus. This is not what I expected. In my short 30 years of life, and truthfully, in my 30 years of life that have actually been a lot more sweetness than suffering, I still have come to find that in following Jesus, we will end up in places where we think to ourselves, this is not what I expected. Anybody else? I could tell you mine stories of disappointment and prayers seemingly met with silence. I remember sitting on my bedside in junior high, processing, with my, processing my parents' divorce and thinking to myself, this isn't what I expected. I remember crying on airplanes and hotel rooms when I was 27 because my engagement was ending. I remember feeling so embarrassed and helpless and shocked and let down. And all I could think of was, this is not what I expected. It's the friend who knows that the spirit can bring freedom. yet still has that compulsion that they can't tackle for more than a few months at a time. It's the friend, and it's my friend, who trusts that God offers peace and wholeness in his body. And every so often, though, the anxiety attacks and the depression, they come back and they hit hard and they hit fast. It's the friend who knows God cares for her more than the flowers and the birds, but she's still at risk of sleeping in her car again. It's the friend who has prayed for everyone else, but the thing with their child isn't well. It's the friend who's been walking the battle for over three years now and is so tired of even having to ask for prayer again. It's the moments that we wonder, what did Jesus really mean when he said, it is finished? Because a lot of things feel like they've been left undone. It's the moments where the promises of God sound a whole lot better than they feel. It's my friend who left the whole Jesus thing behind because what they've experienced doesn't quite seem to add up anymore. We all have the stories, and we all probably have the scars. I see some of you nodding because you understand. I know that I'm looking at people in this room who've had some doubts and who've had some disappointments. And I know I'm talking with some people who have thought or will think one day, this is not what I expected. So friends, what do you do when life with God surprises you? What do you do when Jesus seems so randomly miraculous? What do you do when you're feeling a lot more of the pain than the promise? When you're experiencing not enough of the already and too much of the not yet? What do you do when it feels like you can't sustain in the suffering? What do you do when life doesn't go as expected? Well, without intervention, we typically cope. And we all do it differently, right? Some of us wake up and only to cry at the tomb like Mary. Some of us go back to whatever is safe and familiar like Peter in the boat. And some of us, we wall ourselves in like Thomas. Notice that Thomas is sitting in the house, doors locked, walls around. With the words that so many of us know from experience, I will not trust that again. And we get it. We get the guards and we get the walls. Some of us, the walls are obvious. We close off and we close up. Some of us recluse and we don't get out too much anymore. Some of us stay guarded from letting people in. And for so many of us, myself included, we don't really ask anymore. We pray less and less. Jesus seems random and unpredictable. He broke my trust and therefore he's dangerous. We become like MJ in Spider-Man. If you expect disappointment, you can never really be disappointed. So we wall ourselves off from the riskiness of prayer and in that we end up walling ourselves from any form of hope. Because it can seem better to stay in the safety than risk the possibility of disappointment that hides behind every hope. It's easy to get Thomas because we are Thomas. We are that disciple. We've been or we will be disappointed. So what do we do when we end up doubting, disappointed, or disillusioned? What do we do when life doesn't go as expected? Well, Jesus does the unexpected. And I don't mean that in like a trite, rhymy, dismissive, low bar, easy to preach sort of way. He actually does something so surprising. Look at what Jesus does. John 20, verse 26. Jesus walks through walls. Or in other words, Jesus shows up. He steps into suffering. And even though sometimes he shows up later than we'd like. He does it with Mary and Martha at their dead brother's tomb in John chapter 11. Both women grieving and reminding Jesus that if he would have shown up sooner, things would have been different. Jesus does something kind of expected with them though. He gives two sisters with the same story, in the same situation, with the same pain, two different answers. Go read John chapter 11. Why does he do that? Well, maybe because he knows exactly what each person needs. In the middle of suffering, Jesus aims to meet us at the core of our heart. Jesus does this with Mary from Magdala. She waits at the tomb after Jesus dies in John chapter 20. She's at the grave, deep in grief, and Jesus shows up. He shows up and then asks her a question. Mary, why are you crying? Jesus does a similar thing to Peter in John 21. After everything fell apart, Peter went back to fishing, back to the old life Jesus brought him out of. Jesus shows up, cooks some food. I love Jesus. And asks Peter a question three times. Peter, do you love me? And the scripture has such an interesting detail here that seems kind of sort of unnecessary. It says that Jesus is cooking over a charcoal fire. He's cooking over a charcoal fire all right. Now, just a cold few nights earlier, Peter promises Jesus that he would never betray him. But in a moment of fear or weakness or just getting caught up in the moment like we humans sometimes do, Peter denies Jesus. He goes back on his word and the next day, Jesus dies. Do you know where that happens? Do you know where Peter hits his lowest point? The NIV doesn't have a detail that a number of other translations do. Peter denies Jesus around. A charcoal fire. That smell of charcoal was likely unmistakable. Some argue that smell is one of the strongest senses connected with memory. And those who've been through traumatic experiences know how familiar senses and experiences can quickly drag you back down to the trauma. So I imagine that every time Peter would get near a charcoal fire, or see a charcoal fire, or smell a charcoal fire, he would remember the cold night of his greatest regret and his deepest pain. So we find Peter, he's fishing on the lake, back at the place that Jesus originally brought him out of. And it's on that shore that Jesus cooks Peter a meal. Meals are what you do for your friends. Meals are what you do for people who you're in good standing with. Meals are for those you're at peace with. Jesus cooks a meal for Peter over a charcoal fire. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what Jesus is up to? That's Jesus' wisdom. That's his loving, tender care. He meets Peter w- where he's at and begins to heal Peter's story, not through answers, but through encounter and questions. Peter, do you love me? And this isn't even my notes, but it's so fascinating. If you look in the Greek, Jesus goes, Peter, do you agape me? You know what Peter's response is? Peter goes, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. Second time, Jesus goes, Peter, do you agape me? Jesus, Peter goes, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. Jesus asks the third time, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter goes, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. I think Jesus just meets Peter where he's at. Jesus took the scent of Peter's greatest defeat, a charcoal fire, and then he repurposed it to be a symbol of Peter's great redemption. It's actually in the smallest details of our lives that Jesus does his work. He cares about the details. He cares about the trauma in the body and the senses. He cares deeply about the root source of pain. He wants to get to the heart of our hurt, so he often traces it to the root question and then just meets us in that question most often without even a specific answer. Jesus uses encounter and questions, not just answers, to bring the deepest forms of healing. Jesus shows up. He shows up for Thomas in verse 26, then he speaks, "Peace be with you." Remember that whatever Jesus speaks, it's not his hope or his intention or it's his wish. It's actually what he is making happen. Jesus begins to create peace or shalom or wholeness for Thomas. Then, verse 27, Jesus does something really specific and kind of unexpected. Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds. Come here, Thomas, touch where I took on and conquered suffering and touch the scars from death. Jesus shows that he's the kind of Messiah who isn't aloof to suffering. He isn't a ruler who's distant. As the scriptures say, He is acquainted with our grief. He gets it. It's one, of the thing, it's one thing to have a God who has power and can alleviate suffering, but it's an entirely different thing to have a God who willingly subjugates himself to suffering. It's so unexpected because it's not how I would do it. And it's probably not how you would do it either. But God does not do his great acts of healing in impersonal ways. Jesus' most powerful act of healing was deeply personal. It came through his suffering. And in the same way, Jesus uses and repurposes our suffering as his most powerful moments for healing. Tyler talked about this some last week. Our God is one who suffers. Our God is in the business of redeeming suffering. And our God promises that he is coming to completely rid the world of suffering. So come, Lord Jesus, again, we pray. Now, that does not mean that he always helps us make sense of suffering. He doesn't always show us what's happening behind the scenes. He doesn't always clean up each moment with a neat and tidy bow. He doesn't always do the thing that we like him to do. His redeeming suffering doesn't even mean that all of our pain feels like it was worth it in the end. And that's where Jesus' invitation to Thomas is so poignant. Put your finger here in my hand. See it. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Feel it. Jesus invites Thomas to see how he understands suffering through his own experience. And I think that as Thomas touched Jesus' wounds, maybe he began to feel Jesus healing his own wounds. Thomas found there's fellowship with Jesus in suffering. And Jesus wants to use suffering as the raw, costly materials for something good. And then as Thomas is touching Jesus' wounds, Jesus says those famous words, verse 27, stop doubting and believe. Remember what Thomas said, I will never pistevo trust? Jesus says to Thomas, stop a pistos, untrusting, but instead, pistos, trust. Thomas, stop untrusting, but instead, trust. Trust is believing the reliability, the truthfulness, the ability, or the strength of something or someone. So as the disciple touches Jesus' wounds and scars from suffering, he's invited to trust that Jesus is and will be reliable. This is his credibility. This is the proof that he's reliable. He's been wounded. Verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet still trusted. Jesus seems to think that a better way to live is not to always see how things are going to work out and still trust. Jesus' invitation is not to clean answers or to sorting it all out or to stuffing all the hurt somewhere quiet and not tell anybody about it. Jesus' invitation is not to get over the intellectual hurdles or the real questions. Instead, Jesus invites the disciples back on the journey of trusting. He invites his followers into the messiness of relationship with a God Who's a person and not a formula. Jesus does not welcome Thomas into safety or certainty or control, but instead into trusting, which truthfully is kind of the opposite of how I want to live. How many of us deep down think, Jesus, I need to see before I trust, or almost the inverse or after really hurt. Jesus, I will not trust no matter what I see. Trust is such a struggle, so I don't want to oversimplify all of doubt and disillusionment and suffering to just say, get over it, it's easy. A lot of times, especially after disappointment, trust is not easy. It can be difficult and costly and messy and sometimes embarrassing and possibly painful. And still, trust, even in disappointment, is the invitation. So how can we become the sort of people who grow in our trusting Jesus? How? Well, an unexpected answer to that is actually the spiritual discipline that may surprise you is the spiritual discipline of singing. And by singing, I mean worship. Trust is all about reliability. When we feel like trust with a person is broken, we call into question their character. We question their reliability. But when we sing in worship, we verbalize who God is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. When we sing, we call ourselves to consider that God may be bigger than my perceived experience of him in this season. That God's character may be bigger than my moment. It's in those acts of the will, not the feelings or even the desires, but the will that we subtly teach ourselves to trust God's reliability. We can actually build and strengthen our trust in God through singing. Doubt is about our worldview, not matching up with our experiences. Doubt is often the dialogue that we have within ourselves. When we sing and worship, though, we actually bring another person into the conversation with our doubt. When we sing, we broaden our world to see that God is so much bigger and we join a choir of other worshiping doubters and other doubting worshipers and remember that I am not the center of God's song. I find it interesting that singing is one of the most repeated formational devices used for a people who are constantly suffering, for a people who are living in the middle of the already not yet, for a people who are between the promise and pain. God invites them constantly to worship and sing. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, once said, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of all the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore, the chief remedy of that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. In college, I had this friend named Vince, and I remember one day walking into his dorm room. Vince was a little eccentric, and he looked at me and asked me a question. Christian, why do you think the Psalms is the, prayer book, of, or is the book of prayer and worship? He paused in a semi-dramatic fashion that Vince would do. He, anyone else have that friend? He like, they both a question, and they're just kind of being dramatic, and they wait. Look under you with your glasses, Vince. He looked at me and said, because the Psalms are where we learn to bring our whole self, our honest self to God. Worship is where we meet God with our hope and our joy, of course, but it's also where we meet God with our anger, with our sadness, with our sorrow, with our stirrings, with our suffering. It's in that place, the place where we're deeply honest that we encounter more of God because we're giving God more of us. I was reading Deuteronomy this week and I was struck that when God's people are standing on the line between their past and the promised land, God instructs the people through Moses to remember the truth of what he's done and what he promises to do and how they should live in the midst of it through singing. King David is onto this. All through the Psalms, we see David call himself to sing. He calls himself to remember God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Do not forget his benefits. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for yet... I will praise him. Maybe it's no accident that one of the longest books in scripture is the book that leads God's people into singing and worship in the middle of suffering. That the, the pastor Paul, he's onto this too. When Paul teaches the church in Corinth to build up one another in love, he calls them to pray and to sing, to prophesy and to sing. When he tells the church to allow the word of Christ to dwell in them richly, he says teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But this isn't just like good preaching or good theology to Paul. It's not. It's actually his own experience. When he's chained up in prison and things aren't really fully going as expected, Paul begins to sing and he begins to worship in the prison cell. Our songs, they're not always songs of the mountaintops. They're actually the songs of the pit and the prison. Our songs, they train our eyes to see God who's in the middle of the valley, the place where we typically actually don't think he is. Singing trains our eyes to see him. And the unexpected thing is that we often start seeing God in the valleys with our mouths before we see him with our eyes. Do you know who else understood this? Enslaved Africans in America who strengthened themselves during insurmountable suffering through songs called spirituals. Civil rights leaders who used freedom songs to keep one foot in front of the other. Followers of Jesus who lived a few decades longer than us and made it through some pretty hard things, like Mr. Weems, he's my sixth grade band teacher. He's the one who taught me piano and he taught me the importance of worship. It's Jesus followers like my grandma Charlotte who developed the practice of quietly singing hymns to guide her heart back to Jesus all throughout the day. Songs like, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? And why not every man? Songs like, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Glory, hallelujah, which means praise God. It's a call to action. Every time we say hallelujah, we're calling ourselves to action. Or someone's crying, my Lord. Come by here. Someone's crying, my Lord. Come by here. Someone's crying, my Lord. Come by here. Oh, Lord, come by here. It's spiritual, it's like Weeping Mary that say, if if there's anybody here like Weeping Mary, call upon Jesus and he'll draw nigh. If there's anybody here like Doubting Thomas, call upon Jesus and he'll draw nigh. He'll draw nigh, oh glory, hallelujah. Glory be to my God who rules on high. God's people all around the world and throughout the centuries have learned to use songs to see God in suffering. But if we want the greatest example of this, Look no further than Jesus himself. Right before he goes to his greatest moments of suffering, the scripture says in Matthew 26 that he sang a hymn. Then a few hours later, he felt the ultimate form of suffering as he died on the cross. Do you remember his words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not just a feeling or some words that came to Jesus' mind. That's actually the Psalms. Turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 22. I really want you to see and hear excerpts from the Psalms. We're going to fly through this in Tyler fashion. I would invite you during Lent or Holy Week, though, to read through these Psalms and imagine Jesus on the cross in his greatest moments of suffering, praying, and dare I even submit to you, singing. Psalm 22. Just hear the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Roaring lions they tear their prey they open their mouths wide against me I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart has turned to wax it is melted within me but you Lord do not be far from me you are my strength come quickly to help me I will declare your name to my people in the assembly I will praise you you who fear the Lord praise him all your descendants of Jacob honor him revere him all you descendants of Israel for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one he has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry from help. That's Psalm 22, what Jesus is quoting on the scriptures. Then keep going. Psalm 23, you know it. Even though I walk through the, va- the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of the, my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can go to the next two psalms later, Psalm 25, In you, Lord, I put my God, I put my trust, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Psalm 26, vindicate me, Lord, for I have been blameless. I've trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty and whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. My feet stand on level ground and in the congregation I will praise the Lord. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when the wicked advance against me to devour me? It's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. I remain confident of this. I We'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living so wait for the Lord be strong and take heart and wait For the Lord, Psalm 28, you see what's happening? You, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands to your most holy place. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. Psalm 30, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths, and you did not. Let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going to the pit. So sing praise to the Lord, you faithful people. Praise his holy name. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praise and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Jesus on the cross, Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock. my refuge, a strong tower and fortress to save. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Then that famous line from Jesus's lips, into your hands. After saying that, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The next line, deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. That is how Jesus got through suffering. Through his dying breath, Jesus is bleeding the written and sung prayers of God's people. The pastor who penned Hebrews said that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And maybe that joy was refueled by the prayers and songs of the Psalms. With every lyric and line, Jesus strengthened his confidence in God to walk with him through suffering. So if Jesus needed the prayers and songs of his day to help strengthen him through suffering, maybe we do too. I will. If Jesus needed the prayers and songs of his day to help him, to help strengthen him in suffering, maybe we do too. Amen. Maybe there's something that the enslaved Africans in America understood about our following Jesus and suffering that we could learn from and lean into. Now, to be vulnerable, I've been somewhat nervous to preach this because there's a risk of me being overly simplistic. So please hear me. I'm not saying that singing and worship makes everything feel better. I'm not saying that it gets rid of the problem. I'm not saying that when the praises go up, the blessings come down. But I am saying, at the very least, that singing and worship is one of the best ways we can build up trust in the middle of trials. Singing calls us in suffering and in strength, on the mountain and in the valley, when it's pleasure and when it's pain, to let our mouth tell the truth of who God is until our eyes see it. Seeing calls us to move our bodies in praise when we want nothing more than to wall up and wall in, to lift our hands or bend our knees in surrender when we want to grasp for control, to be still and know that he is God, that he will be exalted among the nations when we want to work everything out ourselves, to read lyrics from a screen as a discipline, to read lyrics from a screen that tell the truth about who God is rather than just letting our minds wander to wherever they may. Singing curates the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart. Singing trains our eyes to notice God in the valley. Singing bridges God's faithfulness in the past with God's promises for the future and helps us find our footing in the present. We need to sing, family. And we need to get our whole selves in worship even when we don't prefer the genre or the set list isn't doing it for you or the band's a little sloppy today or the singer forgets the words, hello. We need to sing. And we need to hear one another sing. I need to gather and I need to hear my sisters and brothers sing truth when I don't feel it myself. My singing is not just about me. It's about the person next to me. You may not what I'm going, know what I'm going through. You may not know what the person that came in sitting behind you or in front of you is going through. And they need to hear you sing lyrics like, I will praise you on the mountain. I will praise you when the mountain's in my way. You're the summit where my feet are. So I will praise you in the valleys, all the same. Or come... Gather your strength, open your hearts, give him your hallelujah and trust him again. Deep in the night, pour out your hallelujah and know that you're not alone. You run with the saints. Singing out hallelujah to God who sits on the throne, he is our hope, worthy of highest praises. Singing can be a powerful act of service to our sisters and brothers. Singing may be the spiritual discipline we need most in suffering. And in some ways, Thomas does just that. He replies to Jesus in verse 26, my Lord and my God. Some would say that Thomas begins to worship, and it's in that moment that Jesus invites Thomas to trust before he sees. That's doubting Thomas, a guy a lot like us. Did you know that church history goes on to say that Thomas Thomas planted the church in India and was martyred there? doesn't sound like moments and seasons of disappointment and doubt are what defined all of Thomas's story. And I'm not sold that doubt or disappointment has to define all of your story either. So where does that leave us? Well, and team, you can come up. The whole invitation today isn't primarily to sing. It's actually just to trust Jesus. Singing is one of the best spiritual disciplines to help our trust in God grow. But trust will look a little different for each of us. Trusting God amidst disappointment, it's tough. Trusting anyone who causes disappointment or seems to cause disappointment is tough. Trusting God may not be the huge daunting thing of trusting him with my whole life and my whole heart and my whole self. For some of us today, trusting God is just going to be opening up in honesty again. Developing trust with God may not be giving him everything, but just showing up. Trust in God may be naming, God, here's the pain. Or even, scary, but God, I think you hurt me. Trust may be re-engaging with God again. For some of us, developing trust is engaging in worship, both in the weekly gatherings and, just as important, in your houses or when you walk by the way or when you lie down or when you rise. Just taking little moments to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing. For some of us, developing trust will be praying through and meditating on the Psalms, finding maybe just one Psalm for a whole week and taking three minutes each day to pray it. For some of us, developing trust is opening up our eyes to see God, not just on the mountain, but in the valley. Maybe journaling, is you can journal little ways that he might be showing up in your lives. For all of us, developing trust is bringing our full self, our honest self, our joys, our hopes, our celebrations, our griefs, our disappointments, our doubts, and our disillusionment back to Jesus over and over again. Last thing I'll say is Matthew chapter 28. It's this interesting line that just caught me off guard the last time I read it. We see Jesus, risen Jesus, standing around a crowd of people, and as he's ascending into heaven, the scripture writer decides to leave this little note and says that some worshiped and some doubted. And maybe there's something to the life of a follower of Jesus that doubt and worship can happen side by side. We can trust Jesus with the unexpected.